Hello, I'm Scott Morris and welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'll be joined later by Drew Davendale and Craig Eastman. However, uh, due to a series of unfortunate events, we are unable to record a fresh new podcast for you in this slot. Uh, We'll have our latest intermission catch-up with you on the first, but to give you something to tide you over until then, here's a selection of our favourite reviews from the third year of our podcast. Uh, We'll kick things off with a little something from our July 2017 Hell A episode with To Live and Die in L.A. So I guess that's enough of that. We can move on now uh, forward some many years to mid-80s L.A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the neon-tinged <laughs> nightmare that is to live and die in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> when L.A. thought it was Miami. Yes, to live and die in L.A., which anyone who's listened to our podcast religiously, first of all, get help. But secondly, <laughs> we'll probably have heard me mention to live and die in L.A. at some point as a personal favourite. Mention William Friedkin to a film fan and they will in all likelihood respond first with either The Exorcist or The French Connection, depending on their personal proclivity. Although I'm gathering from Drew's, <laughs> Drew's mention earlier his own personal proclivity maybe to mention. <laughs> I love The French Connection. I think The French Connection is superb, and but it's pretty much where mm. my relationship with William Friedkin begins and ends in any positive manner. Fair enough. Well, you may even get the odd sorcerer or cruising in there, but certainly that film fan's first instinct will be to gravitate toward the director's 70s output, and deservedly so, I'd say. There is a less likely answer, however, in To Live and Die in L.A., Friedkin's oft-forgotten 1985 Secret Service thriller and a film behind which there is a growing movement for reassessment. Now, do not stop me if you've heard any of the following before, because we'll be here all bloody day. But To Live and Die is a story of an on-the-edge Secret Service agent named Richard Chance, <laughs> uh, played by William Peterson, whose partner is murdered just days short of retirement while investigating a talented counterfeiter on his own time. Hugh Roger Murtaugh's signature exasperated saxophone riff. Uh, Chance vows to do whatever it takes to bring the perpetrator to justice. And for the most part, you'd think that would be all there is to know. His name is Chance. People tell him he's crazy. His partner just got killed ahead of retirement. His new partner is a total straight edge. If William Peterson spent the whole movie in a t-shirt emblazoned with a 100-point impact font reading I'm a maverick me, it would probably not look out of place. And it would certainly not put me off watching To Live and Die on endless repeat because, as I have said before, it is, quite frankly, the second best movie to come out of Hollywood during the 80s. (laughs) And I'm inserting pause for Drew's retort there. (laughs) um, This is the hell I die on, Drew. Because I... I, I'm already at like 400 films that's beyond this in terms of what's coming out of This is the hell I die on, Drew. <laughs> in, <laughs> fact, in fact, To Live and Die is so archly 80s that I suspect the reason it fell off so many people's radars is that it probably all seemed quite embarrassing the second the clock ticked over to 1990. <laughs> now, however, the 80s are apparently cool again, and a lot of people seem to be cottoning on to the movie's strengths, of which there are many, Drew. Peterson's portrayal of chance may be shackled on paper at least by the cliché in which it seems initially mired, but beyond that single sentence synopsis with which I opened this ramble, he makes a bloody good case for one of the cop thriller genre's most compelling anti-heroes. In acid-washed denim and up-collared leather jacket, Chance weaves his way through the LA underworld and new wave art scene in pursuit of a gloriously, quietly unhinged Willem Dafoe as Eric Masters, the painter-turned-counterfeiter whose henchman offed his partner in the opening act. In doing so, he leverages informants and contacts whom he is happy to use and abuse for his own satisfaction, both professionally and personally, in the case of Darlene Floigel, Floigel? Flugel? Let's call the whole thing off. (laughs) Darlene's character, Ruth, a parolee who chances stringing out as informant and a sexual partner. 
Chance's emotionally driven pursuit of his quarry and increasingly unethical tactics do not sit well with new partner John Vukovic, played by John Pankow, nor do they lead to your typical Hollywood ending, with their hero's apparently burgeoning nihilistic bent predictably seeding his downfall. A blistering final act begins with Chance's assertion that in order to get close to Masters, he needs money to pose as a buyer, and that the only way to get that kind of money is to rock up unannounced to a drugs buy and steal it. In doing so, Chance and Vukovic unknowingly kidnap an undercover FBI agent who is subsequently killed, <laughs> precipitating a downward spiral of total f***ness and lending us one of cinema's most criminally forgotten car chase sequences. To live and die in LA is a curious beast, at once conforming to genre tropes, which were, at that point, already a couple of decades out of date, while simultaneously riding an art-pop new wave of experimentalism. It's a precarious balancing act that works surprisingly well, Drew. Despite veering wildly... (laughs) Despite veering wildly from shove city hall up your ass, tough guy bravado one moment, to setting fire to modern artworks on a veranda just because pretentiousness the next, in that sense, I reckon To Live and Die represents perhaps the purest distillation of 80s aesthetics and attitudes in pop culture, with the added bonus of a bespoke soundtrack courtesy of Wang Chung. And, in case you think I'm being facetious when I say that, Drew, you're listening to the man who owns not just the soundtrack to this movie, but also Everybody Wang Chung Tonight, Wang Chung's Greatest Hits, on vinyl and CD. And iTunes. Listen, Wang Chung sang nonsense lyrics to pretentious synth melodies while wearing cream-knitted sweaters, and for that reason they are significantly better than any of us. Punch through the membrane of decade that time forgot cheese. Mmm, delicious 80s cheese. And you'll find a surprisingly complex thriller that doesn't flinch when it needs to bring the tough stuff, nor is afraid to throw a plot curveball when it matters. A satisfyingly anti-Hollywood climax is pretty much the cherry on top of a delightfully self-indulgent cake of excess from which I am quite happy to serve myself a slice any time, Drew. <laughs> to live and die in LA is the cinematic gift that keeps on giving, Drew. I'm feeling tremendously victimised right now. <laughs> As well you should. <laughs> Go on, give me your anti-take. First of all... Um, this is the hill I die on, Drew. <laughs> if you are talking about the most 80s of 80s movies, then you, you seem to have conveniently forgotten, although probably blissfully forgotten the magnificence that is Miami Connection (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that qualifies as a movie (laughs) I really don't oh dear no no it doesn't Um, yes we did attempt to record a commentary on that back in our one liner days yes and against the ninjas we will fight the battle to win that is an atrocious film but it is incredibly 80s to be honest I don't have much to say one way or other about To Live and Die in LA. I didn't not enjoy it, but it left very little impression on me one way or the other. As I mentioned earlier, this is a rescheduled podcast. I originally watched these films a couple of months ago now in preparation for this, and I remember well, pretty much all of the facts of what happened in the film, but can remember almost no emotion I felt about it. I did like the the rather unexpected un-Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. I, appreciate, I always appreciate that in almost any, any film, at least where it doesn't feel too forced. I think it's, in fairness to you, I don't think it's necessarily an emotionally engaging film, because necessarily because its, it's central character is so nihilistic. Pillock. Yeah. Also. He's just not <laughs> yeah. a pleasant guy. No, he's not. And shockingly, from about the age of 15, because I've, I've been in love with this film for a long time, and from about the age of 15 to about 25, so it's probably about a 10-year period, I so wanted to be... William Peterson in this film and I watch it now and I'm, hor- <laughs> I'm horrified at myself for even thinking 
<laughs> for even thinking that. But from that self-destructive nihilistic point of view, what I think is a, a, a fantastically compelling character, not not a nice one. No, he's he's a quite a compelling character. I'll grant you that. It's not like I disliked it particularly. Just the whole thing left me feeling kind of cold. Mm. Um, and part of that is is kind of the point. I think there's a sort of detachment from almost like detachment from humanity running through this film, it feels to me. That ended as well, quietly devastating when you consider the implications for um, Darlene Flugel's character. Yeah, well, yeah, well, so in both parts of the ending, so there's like the William Peterson ending, mm-hmm. and then, yes, the woman at the end of the film. Yeah. And, and yes, it's quite bleak, and I do often like a bleak ending. That's not necessarily because I like bleakness, it's because it's so rare. Just not, just not <laughs> one that's soundtracked to Wang Chung. Yeah, um, I cannot, I don't even remember the music in this. It just, it, it, this film just didn't seem to have any impact on me. It, it was, I was intrigued enough to watch it, find out where it was going, and I liked the, how the story ended. It's just that it largely left me cold. I never felt particularly invested in the film at any point. And as opposed to some other... William Friedkin films, particularly films that might be called The Exorcist, which are amongst the worst films ever made because it's The Exorcist and it's terrible. Not that I have strong feelings on that particular William Friedkin film, but yeah, it just it didn't make me angry or anything like that. I, it just kind of left me cold. And when it comes to mid-1980s William Peterson films, this is not the one I would choose to watch. Mm. I'm assuming you would go for Manhunter. Yes, Manhunter I would watch um, several times, and this I, I don't think I'll ever watch again. I don't mind having watched it this once. This is the first time I've seen it, but I suspect it it's will right, be the only time. we don't time. need to be friends if you don't want to be, Drew. Craig... <laughs> <laughs> You spent your entire review of that abusing me, largely. Um, it's the hill I die on, Drew. <laughs> um, I'm not just repeating myself, but I do remember everything that happened in this film, but I remember pretty much no emotion associated with it at all, and mm. it's not a bad film, and it's well made. I mean, I don't like Willem Dafoe in it so much. Willem Dafoe's a kind of, he's a strange guy, he's a kind of strange guy, um, mm. Sometimes in a film of that kind of strangeness really works, like in Platoon. Mm-hmm. As Elias in Platoon, I really like him. And then other times, he just feels so sort of alien to me, almost. Mm. Uh, and that's maybe what I felt like in this film. I get that. Otherwise, yeah, it's a competent film, but it just didn't... It's more like a thing that was there for me. I, I don't have strong <laughs> feelings one way or the other. Do you have strong feelings, Scott? Tell me you have strong feelings. <laughs> I can't wax as lyrical about it as you can, Greg, but I do like this film, but it's... It's just an interesting little curiosity piece more than anything else because there, there's so many conflicting things that somehow just hang together well enough to work mm-hmm. when really it shouldn't. I mean, the plot sort of swings between bleak nihilism and just outright farce at some points. <laughs> so it, you have this, the darkness of that combined with Wang Chung as a soundtrack to it all and the, the general 80s aesthetic of it all. And there's lots of interesting little conflicts in the film. It's good to see the early appearances by a lot of factors that I turned out quite like uh, I don't know if it's William Peterson's first film but I don't think it was in much before this I always liked um, William Peterson's performance I think is uh, really compelling yeah as I say it's not a, not a good character not a nice character but one that is watchable um, Defoe probably wouldn't have been had much more credits to his name at that point and I think his alienness does kind of work for me as the mm. as the, the heel of the piece because he's built up in Chance's mind as this boogeyman and having him 
be almost otherworldly as part of what he's doing mm. and there's just strange arbitrary pointless decisions that we don't really need to have any rationale why is he burning stuff what was the point of that but that, yeah that works makes him, I, it makes I, him buy, I, I buy that as the artist the only part of his character that it, i took me a long time to reconcile was the the part of the murderer mm. for the longest time it didn't work for me that he had a henchman to do his dirty work but he was quite willing just to you know, uh, well, it's not a plot spoilers, but at some point he blindly murders a <laughs> murders a guy um, in quite brutal fashion, not graphic fashion, but um, mm-hmm. quite brutally. And that didn't sit well for a while with me. It felt a little bit odds, but I've kind of accepted it now. Because like you say, Scott, this is a film which works in spite of itself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a strange mashup of, I used to say, genre tropes and just outright weirdness. Mm. Yeah, works to me and always quite enjoy watching it. It's certainly nothing that would ever put into heavy rotation, but I'll dig it out once every five years and give it a look and very much enjoy my time with it. And I think the one thing, as you kind of touched on, that Friedkin doesn't get any respect for in this is some of the really good action scenes, mm-hmm. either whether it's either car chases or the on-foot chases as well. He does a really good sense of pacing mm-hmm. and uh, motion for putting those sequences together, and that makes it all the more enjoyable to watch. Everybody must Wang Chung tonight. <laughs> you live, Scott. I'll see you in court, Drew. Can I ask Greg though, if this Uh is what you consider the second best film of the 1980s, what's your favourite? Blade Runner. So you think this is better than Die Hard? Mm, I enjoy this more than Die Hard. That surprises me to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this has aged better than Die Hard. If I go back and watch Die Hard now, which let's be honest, it's not exactly a chore to do, um, (laughs) I do think it's dated more. Whereas I think this still feels that bit much more innovative because... It swings so wildly from such reliance on just, you know, from one second, absolutely stayed tropes. And at certain points, dialogue that makes me cringe. Oh, I really like the rain. Yeah, it's groovy. Um, Do you know what I mean? From that to like bizarre art house, new wave, crazy experimental stuff on the other, I still haven't found an ending to a movie that I not enjoy because enjoy is not the word, but that I savour quite so much as the one here. It is one of those films where no one, no one walks away clean from this movie. A lot of people walk away dead. (laughs) 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 A lot of people walk away dead and the ones who are left behind are either irrevocably changed for the worse. And uh, in specific, I'm thinking about Vukovic, John Pankow's character, or are trapped in an absolute personal hell. And I'm thinking of Darlene Flugel's character there. There's, it's just such a downbeat. And I, God, again, enjoys not the word, but I bloody love a downbeat ending. I get fed up of the hero saving it. I get fed up of the hero, frankly, and I'm more compelled by anti-heroes in that respect. Not because I necessarily identify more with them. I'd be worried if I did. Um, I might have thought I did when I was a, te- a teenager, but I understand now as an adult that I don't. But I, I relish that antithesis much much more in something like this. And I just think it says something much more about the human condition that in a set of circumstances such as this, guess what? Everybody comes out for the worst. I think that's a much more honest assessment than Hero jumps in at the end of the day, shoots the bad guy, and you know survives with a flesh wound and rides off into the sunset. I just that's just not the life experience I think anyone has. I think in a set of circumstances where a police officer accidentally kidnaps an FBI agent because he's stealing drug money in pursuit of 
a murderous counterfeiter, I don't think that's a scenario that's going to turn out well for anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's not comparable in any way in terms of the content, but it's one of the reasons I have very little time for Lars von Trier, but the ending, of, <laughs> the ending of Dogville makes me so happy because they oh, just like okay. they just kill everybody. It's like yes, there's no. Um, forgiving of people for, for the bad things they've done around the end and I think um, I haven't seen Dogville but yeah that was my understanding of, of the ending of that and for, for and for that reason I keep meaning to catch up with that you've just reminded me to put it on my watch list yeah in terms of just talking about 1980s films so it's neither Blade Runner nor Dianelli would be anywhere near the top of my favourite 1980s films but well, apparently we'll see each other in court <laughs> and I'll challenge your um, <laughs> I'll challenge you to live and die in LA with my Cinema Paradiso and um, Akira and... Arthouse Pap. <laughs> and the Naked Gun. I'd much, I'd much rather have a film that pretends to be Arthouse at points. <laughs> and Once Upon a Time in America, I will take your Friedkin and I'll raise you a Leone. Ah, overrated hack. <laughs> no I think this is listen I'm under no illusions there's no objective argument for this to be made uh, sorry for this uh, to be made for this to be one of the greatest films of the 80s but it is the film that I enjoy the most after Blade Runner from the 80s uh, it's, I hold it very dear and I absolutely love it to death for all of its for all of its flaws and it is still the second best film to come out of the 80s and um, yes that's that that's that our January 2018 Compare and Contrast episode sought to find out if Bloodsport was better than Enter the Dragon. It was not a difficult question to answer, as our discussion on Bloodsport will prove. Bloodsport, yeah. Scott. Um, Bloodsport. Now, because Bloodsport is, well, Bloodsport, I'd either not noticed or cared prior to this. <laughs> cared about the uh, text appearing at the end of this film, claiming it to be a <laughs> I've got, I've got a screenshot based of that. on the real life exploits of Frank Ducks. Now this holds up in as far yes. as this is an accurate portrayal of what Frank Ducks claims he did. Although, <laughs> at the risk of legal action, Frank Ducks is an inveterate liar to the point that if he told me water was wet, I'd assume the opposite on instinct. <laughs> Frank Frank Ducks is about to be elected to Congress, I believe. Uh, right. So here, John, can I just say that I appreciate the fact that you refer to him as Frank Ducks because the film goes out of its way. To <laughs> Actually, it's pronounced Dukes. Nope. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not Frank. For me, he's Ducks. Yes. I know you threatened to punch the screenwriter in the face, <laughs> but it's most definitely Ducks. You may think of it as a slight. It is intended as such. Um, uh, here Jean-Claude Van Damme inhabits the persona of Ducks as we are introduced to him training in some no-doubt top-secret army facility that totally existed before ducking out to meet his sensei, Senzo Tanaka. Ducks has been chosen to enter the Kumite, a top-secret international underground fight tournament that totally happens, as this documentary will tell us. (laughs) It's also one of those top-secret underground things that literally everyone knows about, apart from one reporter. But before we get to that, we need to flash back to a young Ducks and how he convinced Senzo to train Ducks in the art of ninjutsu alongside Senzo's son in Unheard of Honor. Uh, but perhaps the most notable thing about this segment is that he managed to find a kid actor that's more wooden than Van Damme was at this point in his career, which scientists had previously determined to be <laughs> theoretically impossible. Oh, no, that's that's underplaying <laughs> Scott. I, mean, I assume they got this kid to try and make it sound... So he sounded a little like Van Damme, but Van Damme has been proven time and time again to actually be able to talk like a human being. <laughs> Please don't. There's this kid. I'm finding it very difficult to, to uh, I've got a list of comments. 
notes in front of me in <laughs> Apple Notes that I made because it's been a long time since I watched this film and I made about two pages of notes just on Young Van Damme and it's, I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to not mention any of them and the only reason I'm not is because none of them are appropriate none of them none of them <laughs> None of them would be deemed inoffensive. A lot of it's like the stage direction was again, but with less emotion. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, it's always it's hard to to not do this, but you feel bad about having a go at somebody who's a kid. <laughs> but um, but uh, the best I can say about the person playing the young Van Damme character, young Frank Duke's character, is that um, he does a halfway believable representation of a person wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> because at no point did anybody show this kid footage of Van Damme or let him meet Van Damme or let him watch the dailies of Van Damme and say this man but younger <laughs> the scenes this kid are in make it worth watching this movie and that's my opinion and I won't have a lot else to say about it but <laughs> Will will it surprise you to know, Craig, that um that that young Van that young Frank um was never in anything again ever. <laughs> this is his one and only short, credit. Very short filmography on IMDB. <laughs> he's still he's still sitting next to the phone now. <laughs> I just don't understand. My agent never calls. Yeah, uh, Senzo's kids had previously also been invited to a kumite, but he did not survive the tournament of death. Something, something, reclaim honour, something, something, vengeance. So off Ducks goes with two military... Is that how he died? I sort of, I completely lost track during this film. It's like, he's dead at one point. I'm like, uh, did he, uh, okay, he's dead and I forgot why. That's what I took from it anyway. <laughs> this is Revenge me, hemp knight. <laughs> oh no, that was another film. This is how much um, this film's um, grabbed my attention. <laughs> so off Ducks goes with two military investigators on his tail trying to stop him. One of whom plays played by a young Forrest Whitaker, which always surprises me. And yep. Then I'm yeah. surprised that I'm surprised because really, who devotes brain space to memorising blood sport? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, Forrest Whitaker is possibly incredibly the one person incredibly out of place in this film for the one person who <laughs> might have any sense that he could act at all. <laughs> I, I I will hold my hand up to that, but we'll come to that in a minute, Scott. And I, but I feel like I've got to get out of jail free card, so carry on. <laughs> uh, Ducks heads off to Hong Kong, running into fellow fighter. American brute slash halfwit Ray Jackson, played by Donald <laughs> Gibb. It's good to see the Bee Gees branching out. And Victor Lin, played by Ken Stu. Strolled a f***er around for the runway. <laughs> Do you make him say kumite? It's like saying uncle. <laughs> Talking about doing that spin kick. I get it again. <laughs> Just keeps going. I'm going to wear mom jeans and kick you in the face. <laughs> this is value. This is content. This is why we've been missing Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Jackson and uh, Victor Lin Kensu, who becomes their chaperone in the fight club scene. Ducks also runs into journalist slash exposition cipher Janice Kent, baby Lee Ayers who is also the love interest for the irresistibly charismatic and beautiful Frank Ducks, at least as Frank Ducks tells it. (laughs) (laughs) So the tournament begins with the combatants punching and kicking each other in various combinations, leading up to a fight between Ducks and nefarious end-boss Bolo Young's Chong Lee, who is a big, dirty cheater. 
and also a murderer, but it feels as though the film thinks that throwing chalk in Ducks' eyes is the bigger crime, at least, as Frank Ducks yeah. tells it. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's such a strange way to... Eat my aspirin, bitch. Yeah, it's such a strange way they've uh, created that character too, because when they're warning Frank about the Kumite at the beginning and they're saying, uh, here's um, Bo Young's character, and like, um, last year he actually killed a person, it suggests that, okay, yeah. that's, that was, it was like out of out of um the ordinary but it's, so he's like he's really dangerous and mm. because he fights so hard but the not that he basically he spends four or five different rounds you see him straight up murdering people <laughs> i was gonna say i found it i found it really odd this time around to watch it because clearly on two or three occasions he like he picks people's prone people up yeah. and like snaps their necks but nothing's ever made of it except one of his latter opponents like his last opponent before ducks where they have this big moment of someone rushes out and checks his pulse and they're like oh my god he's dead I'm like, but what about <laughs> The other three guys yeah. he fought before yes, who just straight he, up murdered people. As far as I can see, he snapped their necks or yeah. they oh did they get better? <laughs> really odd. Obviously, this film is not a patch or into the dragon in any aspect, but judged oh, but alongside its contemporaries in the glut of Western backed martial arts action films that ruled the eighties with an iron fist, this is resolutely okay. Uh, director Nick Arnold <laughs> actually has quite the reference list as an assistant director and I don't think any of the problems with the film are necessarily of his making uh, Van Damme's fight choreography is fine although it's not his best the Kickboxer the year later was substantially better if memory serves Kickboxer's better in every yeah. way uh, but uh, it's at least serviceable here um, however <clears throat> anything outside of the Kubite area is like watching well a bad actor. I couldn't think of appropriate simile there <laughs> now Van Damme would later go on to show a decent amount of charisma and even range and ability in the likes of JCVD and Jean-Claude Van Johnston latterly, mm-hmm. but here, not so much, and which makes most of the non-punchy, kicky sections kind of rough. Even in Kickboxer, Scott, mate, it's still quite rough in that regard, but Kickboxer is just, it's light years ahead of yeah. Bloodsport. Yeah, he, he comes on an awful lot. I mean, I will say, like, I, some of the stuff with Donald Gibb is goofy enough to be ironically enjoyable rather than actually enjoyable, I suppose, but Bolo Young, as we've said, just makes for an incredibly imposing antagonist, so it's not a complete bust. Um, in fact, it's, although it's several cuts below any of Bruce Lee's work, I still like Bloodsport quite a bit. You're ever in a situation where you're choosing between this and Enter the Dragon, for some reason I can't possibly imagine. Um, do not hesitate for a second to pick Enter the Dragon, but this world is big enough for both of them, and if you've any interest at all in Kung Fu flicks, Bloodsport is worth watching at least once, if only to see how much yarn Frank Ducks can spin. Yeah. I think Bloodsport is worth watching at least once, if only to imagine the alternate universe in which Bruce Lee didn't die after Enter the Dragon, and then this <laughs> didn't this didn't happen afterwards to fill the void. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and we didn't, and we didn't have to wait till two thousand when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out and made Kung Fu cool again in the mainstream. <laughs> I, know, um, I hadn't seen Bloodsport since I was a kid, so this is the first time I've seen it in a long, long time. And I, I'm not entirely sure I can get on board with the fact you should maybe watch Bloodsport once because it's not good. I mean, let's be um, clear: if you've not been involved anywhere in the world of martial arts, you've got a whole host of stuff to go through. You've got all of Bruce Lee's uh-huh. stuff. You've got a whole ton of Wushu stuff, the whole Chinese ghost story, and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. You've got all of watch Jet Feng Sai Yuk. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, a whole bunch of Jackie Chan to look at, and even more laterally, you've got things like Tony Jaa to get through for quite a few of his films before you get anywhere near oh. sort of trawling through you, Van Damme's back catalogue. You don't need to look at Van Damme until you. You're in your 60s. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think if you, uh, for some reason, have been, if you are a sort of genre fan but haven't seen any of Van Damme stuff, then I think this is an interesting little origin story for him, at least. Um, he'll go on to do 
somewhat better films um, and a lot of absolute garbage, which is you know probably far more forgettable than Bloodsport and probably much worse on a sliding scale when he goes like more action-orientated, that kind of thing. But this has some interest to it, I think. It's, it's not... I don't think we should be written off completely, even though points of it are, are you know, wildly below par. I mean, it's, there are some fun bits. Some of the fights are interesting. You know, Bolo Young is a, is a worthy adversary. Yes. And to be honest, I got more entertainment than I ought to have done watching Van Damme pretend to be blind and move around <laughs> like looking like Stephen Root and Old Brother Where Art Thou. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, I was trying to think of an, I was trying to think of an analogue for that and you've now I was struggling and you've absolutely nailed it. Oh, oh, seriously, there, especially there's a I posted a gif in my Twitter of this, but there is a bit where he looks exactly like Stephen Root when he's listening to the records in that film. Uh, Listen, the the best I could come up with in terms of analogue to that where he's sort of he's reaching out and he's doing that half terrified face was the closest I could get was Paul Bearer. <laughs> the Undertaker's oh, like hype oh, man. The power of the urn. <laughs> oh, the power of the urn. Oh, and all I could do was imagine JCVD. All I could do was go the closest I can get is imagine him just going now, oh, the power of the urn. <laughs> but uh, I think Stephen Root's the better comparison. <laughs> it was good because I have no idea what you're talking about because you've lost me entirely. Cool. So, cool. Um, I followed this up the next night with watching Kickboxer and all I can say is Kickboxer's better in every way so it's much better to watch that instead of Bloodsport. Well, Kickboxer's got um, uh, an old Oriental fellow throwing coconuts at JCGD, hasn't it? So, Im- so immediately, you know, know, Metacritic score of 30, which is at least one better than, than Bloodsport. There's something about Bloodsport, the... I just didn't find the impacts particularly convincing in the fights, whereas no, Kickboxer no, no. feels a bit crunchier, a bit closer to something like Enter the Dragon. Mm. And there is also that genuinely kind of squeamish-looking scene where he's kicking that palm tree in half. Yeah. Um, that's actually you, and a you, really visceral scene. And you start to get sore as you're watching it, yeah. Yeah, um, that, that, that's convincing. I mean, I mean, I imagine he's clearly making contact with him, and I assume it's been a week, mm. it's a tree that's been weakened, but still... Kickboxer is better in every pace. I think if you're considering watching Bloodsport, watch Kickboxer. I, I do not like Bloodsport. I, I had such clear memories of liking it, and mm-hmm. I think I must have been, I don't know, 10 when I, the only other time yeah. I watched it, and it's not aged well for me. Okay, you and I broadly are on the same page here, Drew, right? I am incredibly sad that I watched um, Bloodsport. Not because it's a terrible film, but because it's an important film to me. I also first saw Kickboxer when I was 10, Drew. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's important to me is because it broke my 18 certificate virginity. <laughs> it's the first 18 rated certificate film I have to see that. And I have the son of my mum and dad's friends, George and June Brown, Colin Brown, to thank for that. He was 20 at the time. We were round at their house as we often did. And Colin was uh, an unbelievably cool guy who was like, I don't mind this 10 year old kid hanging out. I like Craig. I tell you what, mum, dad, you're boring. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Craig <laughs> I'm gonna take Craig in my crazily oversouped Nissan at ninety miles an hour through <laughs> Grangemouth to the video shop and we're gonna rent a film on VHS. And we were in the video shop and I remember I was at an age where I was terrified to even be seen to be looking at a fifteen certificate film on the shelf because I thought my mum and dad wouldn't like it. So I remember looking at um what was that terrible, terrible British movie, uh, Just Ask for Diamond? 
Doesn't Do you remember that? All, no. Right, okay. I've never heard of that. Look that up in IMDb because I remember looking at it going, yeah, this looks like something I might enjoy, Colin. And I remember Colin turning around and going, Craig, <laughs> that. Have you seen Bloodsport? <laughs> and I was immediately entranced. And so we went back to George and June Brown's house. And my parents were there and like, what did we get? And my mum and dad were like, oh, what have you got to watch? And Colin was like, Bloodsport, it's an 18, but don't worry about it. And before waiting for my parents' reaction, we went back upstairs <laughs> to Colin's room where he had the six-foot Samantha Fox breast-out poster on his ceiling above his bed <laughs> and, his, and his ridiculous sound system that he just played Def Leppard through constantly. And we sat and watched Bloodsport, and I was enraptured. <laughs> And I wish I'd left a memory at that because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't watched Bloodsport since. It's been sullied. <laughs> and I immediately felt like phoning Colin Brown up and having some sort of therapy <laughs> session um, and asking him, Colin, mate, have you seen Bloodsport since we watched it back in 1989? <laughs> 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 um, because, no, Bloodsport is not a good film. And I, I recall it being massively different than it was. There was some... There was some basic enjoyment for me to be had purely from a perspective of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And like you say, Scott, there's a lot of entertainment to be had from Donald Gibbs' character, Jackson. <laughs> um, but apart Donald from Gibbs, that... Coincidentally, Donald Gibbs' IMDb entry, who lists him as massive, six foot four inches. <laughs> this isn't massive. <laughs> no, not by today's standards. <laughs> have you watched Game of Thrones recently? <laughs> <laughs> He's hardly half tall, to be is he? Have you seen The Mountain? Yes. yes. Yeah, so watching this, I was a little bit disappointed. Um, <laughs> if, yes, if I put it that way. Listen, Jean-Claude Van Damme has made some decent movies. And yes, Kickboxer, which I think was that the film after this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The film he made after this is um, infinitely preferable. I can't remember if that was a Canon Films release as well, but keep in mind this is a Canon Films release. And I don't think I had remembered that. I don't think it had occurred to me. But immediately when the Canon logo came up, I remember thinking, "Oh yeah, we need to do a we need to do an episode where we talk about <sighs> yes. key, Keystone Canon films." Um, I do like seeing that logo around again. I always forget it exists when I go back to these things. Yeah, not around anymore. Yeah. It's, it's an oh, old cool. nostalgia this, of dreadful films. And I actually, a really good this one. movie's going to have massive guns and or people kicking each other in the face. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I actually watched two Canon films of late, which is um, Bloodsport, and then in preparation for another podcast we're going to do soon, Masters of the Universe. I'm like, oh dear, <laughs> Canon, oh, Canon, you wonderful, glorious bastards. <laughs> Drew, I'm so sorry. Yeah, there were three particular Jean-Claude Van Damme films that I was really fond of in the 80s, um, mm -hmm. two of which I've revisited and the third I haven't. So one was Bloodsport, which I mm -hmm. was massively disappointed by Kickbox, which I think still largely holds up as a martial arts film and the, the fighting is entertaining that. Mm -hmm. The third, which I always remember as being the best, so I'm hoping it still will be, is AWOL. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't um, think I've ever seen AWOL. AWOL, I remember like, because AWOL actually had a plot more so than the other what? ones did. Which was like more of a straight up just revenge film. And Kickboxer is Rocky Four, but with kickboxing. Yeah. I mean, it's almost identical, the plot. Um, yeah. And whereas AWOL was about underground fighting in Los Angeles and things, it's actually quite entertaining. Um, yeah. But Bloodsport is definitely the least of the three. It's, it's, I would agree it's probably worth watching once, particularly if you like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, I, I listen, this is I, I don't even know if I would agree with that. And as much as much reverence as I held this in in my memory up until now. For, as much as much as I as much as I held this film on a pedestal for twenty eight years because that's how long since I last watched it, I don't know if I'd recommend anybody watching it. As a martial arts film, it's 
It's terrible. I, <laughs> I even when I think about when I watched this, which was a couple of years after it must have been first released. So, and at that point, we were way behind in the UK on like US releases and stuff. So it yeah. couldn't have been. Oh, it was like a year. Using that was back yeah. when it was like a good year between. Exactly. So this 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 must have been like uh, it must have been out for about a year by that point when I saw it mm. on VHS here and something. And even then, at the age of ten, and this is no joke. I remember. I remember at the age of ten going Forest Whitaker's in this, <laughs> and. Um, but it's it's nothing like I remember, and it, um, from a point of view of uh, what we were talking about before with Enter the Dragon, with martial arts as dance as choreography, it's terrible. There is no moment in this film that yeah. is not ruined by slow motion where actors are reacting to hits two seconds before they land, <laughs> which in slow-mo is stretched out to like four or five seconds. <laughs> People are recoiling from from blows that are, that are to be struck in the future. It's not a good example of martial arts. The only positive I got from it this time was that actually... If you're a martial artist, uh, sorry, if you're a martial arts purist and you're interested in seeing a demonstration of a broad spectrum of martial arts, actually a huge swathe of different martial arts are represented here. The only notable one that I think was absence absent from the fighting styles demonstrated was probably like capoeira but in place of capoeira you get the crazy African guy who's set up for three seconds earlier in the film jumping up a tree who proceeds to take part in I think the two bouts that he takes place in by running about on all fours and hopping about in the mat his fighting style is that of a monkey and I have no idea what martial art that is but those are perhaps the most entertaining 15 seconds of this film (laughs) to watch a guy sort of befuddle like these massive sort of kickboxers and Muay Thai experts by running about on all fours like a monkey and hopping around <laughs> and performing roles and jumping over them at critical moments. That is the only enjoyment I got from this movie <laughs> on this occasion. <laughs> that and the fact that um, Leah Ayers is quite quite stunning. And that's a that's a that's a very shallow thing to say. But what a wonderful lady. I think it was Dostoevsky who said what is there to understand about a bunch of guys who have to prove themselves by beating each other's brains out? No, sorry, that was Lee Ayers who said that <laughs> at the point at which Jackson was landed in hospital by Bolo Young. And honestly, at that point, I wondered if this movie was far more self-aware than I'd given it credit for up until this point, because <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. What is there to understand about a film that revolves <laughs> about guys who prove themselves by beating each other's brains out? There is very little merit to this movie and even if you haven't watched JCV, uh, JCVD's back catalogue you can pretty safely skip this I'm sorry to say and go straight to Kickboxer Fair enough, I, I laughed quite a lot at this still but it's, it's not really for the right reasons so <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I will happily let this one slide <laughs> Oh sorry, the only other positive I have to say and I, I have done great research into this, this movie about two thirds of the runtime of this movie. If you pick a random frame from this movie and put it through a random Prisma filter, two out of three times you're going to get a fantastic artwork <laughs> as a result. Um, so I'd recommend you try that. Other than that, unless you unless you're doing an, an art major or something like that, don't don't worry about it. Skip it, mate. <laughs> Skip it. Our October 2017 intermission included a review of Blade Runner 2049, and now. So too does this episode. As any of you who have listened to the Top Films podcast with which we began this Fuds and Film venture will know, I have not so much a love-hate relationship with Blade Runner as a bafflement-compulsion relationship. (laughs) 
appreciating the visuals and the world, but largely left cold by everything else, while still, for some reason, being unable to stop periodically rewatching it. It's undeniably and objectively a massively influential film, but unlike certain weird people around these parts, who may or may not have a name that rhymes with vague, I realise that proclaiming it the best film of the 80s is borderline insanity. That may well be the hill that Craig dies on, and if so, I'm uh, willing to help. So, As such, when production finally began last year on a sequel, after decades of rumours, false starts, and radiantly Scott doing his best to ruin the original film and its mysteries, I had neither the trepidation nor the excitement that many fans will have felt at the news. Instead, being left with my usual ennui and dismay that Hollywood was once again making a sequel instead of something fresh and new. But the presence of Ryan Gosling, direction by Denis Villeneuve, and perhaps most importantly for a sequel to a film so visually distinctive, the great Roger Deakins' director of photography, I had some hope. Before going to see Blade Runner 2049, I watched Blade Runner again. But, worryingly, for the first time in more than a decade, I didn't enjoy it incrementally more in my recent, most recent viewing. Indeed, my enjoyment of and appreciation for Ridley Scott's 1982 classic took a massive step backwards, and I once again found myself thinking, hmm, this is not a good film. I do not like this film. I do not like it, Sam I am. So, that was a wonderful place to be in before watching the sequel. Word all of which is to say, really, I didn't really have many expectations for this film. And maybe that wasn't to my benefit. We'll see. The original Blade Runner is ostensibly a noir detective story, but one that largely left the detective element out of it. Blade Runner 2049 once again has an LAPD detective as a central character, but from the get-go actually has him do some detective work. And what a difference that makes to the engagement of the story. Said detective is Kay, Ryan Gosling, like Deckard with Warhammer Blade Runner, but a known replicant one of the Nexus 8 models which an, with an open-ended lifespan that were created after the events of the first film and before the blackout, a mysterious week-long power outage that saw vast amounts of electronic records wiped out. The film begins with Kay visiting Sapper Morton, Dave Bautista, a rogue replicant, in order to retire him. After doing this, his survey of Morton's farm reveals a mysterious box buried beneath a tree. The box turns out to be a coffin of sorts, containing the remains of a woman who seemingly died in childbirth. The twist being that the woman was a replicant, the identity of whom I won't mention, but is unlikely to come as a surprise to anyone. This revelation, that replicants are able to reproduce, produces two very different responses in two influential individuals. Kay's superior, Lieutenant Joshi, played by Robin Wright, believes that the knowledge that the already physically and intellectually superior replicants can have offspring will lead to a war with humans. While Jared Leto's Neander Wallace, who took over what was left of the Tyrell Corporation, believes that replicant reproduction is the key to his company's production yield problem. Joshi orders Kay to track down and kill the child, a task which leaves Kay decidedly uneasy, while Wallace's operative, the, the formidable replicant love, Sylvia Hooks, watches Kay from a distance waiting for him to find his target so that she can deliver him, or her, to Wallace to allow him to unlock Tyrell's final secret. Kay's investigation takes him to the laboratories where replicant memories are crafted, an orphanage in the debris-strewn ruin of what was once San Diego but is now a rubbish dump, looking like a vast, city-sized version of Star Wars trash compactor, and to the radioactive ruins of Las Vegas, 
where he meets an unexpected figure from the past, who is Deckard, who is obviously Deckard, and who was always going to be Deckard. Who is Elton John? (laughs) Sadly, while the film tries to keep the identity of Kay's person of interest in the Nevada Desert a mystery, marketing and promotion, perhaps necessarily, ruined that particular revelation. Mm. Pity. Along the way, Kay will discover what happened to the child, and why, and question what it is to be human, and raise questions about free will, the meaning of life, individuality and purpose, and all of that compelling philosophical stuff that was both the crux and most interesting part of the original film. So I suppose now is the part where I talk about if it was any good, particularly in light of how ambivalent at best I am about the original. Oh dear. Dear, dear, dear. Well, yes, it is indeed very good. (laughs) Uh, It is a splendid film. It's not without its faults, which I will come to, but I thoroughly enjoyed Blade Runner 2049, and vastly more so than I ever did the 1982 film. Firstly, and appropriately because the original film's visual style was so striking, and with its lasting influence in legacy, 2049 looks amazing. It's resplendent. It's one of the most attractive films I've seen in a long time. It's a more visually varied film, though has plenty of shots of the grimy, run-down LA that Deckard inhabited. But pretty much every scene and every locale is striking, from Kay appearing through the mist at Morton's farm, to the clinical white settings of the memory fabrication laboratory, to the dust-strewn wasteland of Las Vegas, and the oppressive confines of the Tyrell Wallace Pyramid. I think I could easily just turn the sound down and just look at this film. Next, the story. Because this time there is one, and certainly much more substantially so than Blade Runner. The detective story is engaging, and helped by a similarly engaging performance by Gosling, whose at first unaffected, almost emotionless performance begins to make sense, and then develop and expand as his character does. There are twists, and director Villeneuve and screenwriters Hampton Fancher and Michael Green provide plenty of clues and hints for us to generate theories as to the who's, what's, why's and wherefores of the thing, while keeping us off balance and in the dark enough for us to never be quite sure of anything. I do have one problem with the story though, but it's a biggie, and it is that the final moment of the film, more or less, and by more or less I mean pretty much completely, undermines the entire reason established earlier for that character's previous actions. So, best not to dwell on that too much, I reckon. Acting-wise, it's a mixed bag, but Gosling anchors the film, and that helps take the edge off anything less than stellar. Like, for instance, Edward James Olmos's cameo as Gaff, in which, since Blade Runner, he seems to have forgotten A, that Gaff had an accent that wasn't his natural accent, and B, how to act at all. <laughs> But perhaps the biggest and most welcome surprise is that Harrison Ford has remembered acting. I think, though I hesitate to say it since it seems so unlikely, that he may actually have been enjoying himself in this film. (laughs) Shocking, I know, but I think it's a genuine possibility. (laughs) Certainly, old Deckard is considerably warmer than young Deckard too. Really, was a bit of a cold fish in the first film. And also, really, was a bit of an arsehole. I think this is the only time in the last decade and perhaps longer, that I have seen Harrison Ford act and seem to enjoy doing so, aside from his quite engaging and surprising performance in Morning Glory. Robin Wright is solid enough as Gosling's superior, I guess, but is a little underserved by the script, though nothing like so much as Sylvia Hooks, whose 
character Love becomes a badass ninja chick with a bad attitude for reasons. That type of character is really very tiresome, largely because it's not a character. Though when it comes to acting, nothing and nothing is as bad, as egregious or as downright unwelcome as this film's Rogue One Grand Moff Tarkin moment where we are dragged against our will into the uncanny valley to meet a digital creation every bit as unconvincing and creepy as that Peter Cushing abomination. <sighs> While it had been worrying me, um, I kept my drum out for this because I'm going back to the running time issue. It has been the running theme of this podcast. While it had been worrying me, I will say that the two hour 44 minute running time passed considerably more readily than I expected it would though I wonder how much that will remain the case in any subsequent viewings. But there is still plenty that could be trimmed from that, perhaps most obviously any scene featuring Jared Leto. Not that Leto is particularly bad, more that he's not particularly anything. For all the much-publicised stories of the tedious and tiresome Leto fitting himself with opaque contact lenses so that he would, like his character, be unable to see, I am left wondering what the point was. As Scott there recently observed on Twitter, his motivation and personality could best be described as has weird eyes. <laughs> That's that Scott, the one I'm talking to, not Ridley Scott, in case anybody's confused. <laughs> Indeed, so inconsequential is the character that Leto's entire role could have been reduced to a line or two in the mouth of Sylvia Hook's love about her boss wanting the child for business reasons. That would have done it and you wouldn't have had to have Jared Leto at all. I have a few other gripes, including the... Uh, let's say over-enthusiastic foley work, which gives Dave Bautista steps like the footfalls of doom and punches between Gosling and Ford that sound like a wrecking ball hitting an elephant, as well as some dubious product placement. Wait, 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 how do you know what a wrecking ball hitting an elephant sounds like? What have you been doing with our funds? <laughs> um, Let's not answer on air. Uh, yes, I, I would like to incriminate myself. We don't have the Fifth Amendment or anything like that in this country, so best just to say nothing. <laughs> Yes, uh, product placement, no. While science seen in the original is still present in the sequel in its alternate future, Pan Am, for example, and there is coke advertising. And really, it'd be weird not to have coke advertising in any realistic city setting. There are a couple more egregious examples. First, there's the prominent Sony logos. Sony at least still a functioning company, and expected as this is partly distributed by Sony and produced by Columbia. But Sony just can't ever stop themselves in this regard. And second, there's Atari. Yes, Atari. Now, I know that there were Atari logos in the original film, and it makes sense that in this timeline that Atari would still exist, especially given the apparent technological stagnation that has happened in the 30 years between Blade Runner and 2049. But Atari's logo is here, and this isn't conjecture, this is confirmed fact. Atari's logo is here as paid for product placement. And it's grating when the film more or less stops for a moment to ensure you see the massive Atari logo on the side of a building. A company that hasn't been relevant since... Well, since about the time the original Blade Runner was released. But while it can be fun to carp about such things, which is largely why I do it, these really are minor issues in comparison to an otherwise very, very enjoyable, if flawed film that also happens to be an order of magnitude better than the film it is a sequel to. Definitely one to watch. Probably as good a time as any to insert what Craig sent over uh, as part of this. He says that Harrison Ford nearly made me cry. 
That's nothing to do with the movie. He stole my lunch money in primary too. Apart from that, and having seen it twice now to hopefully enforce some objectivity, it's not a perfect movie, but it is the perfect Blade Runner sequel. Oh, and he really hopes that they quit while they're ahead and don't make another one now, which, based on box office performance, they probably wouldn't consider doing it in the modern market anyway. And uh, I think the first point there was what I was trying to get at, not Harrison Ford stealing <laughs> much money, but um, it is very much its father's son. To the extent that if anyone liked the original Blade Runner, then of course they will like this. The second point that Craig makes is also perhaps valid in as much as it's something I would want to get to. If you didn't like or just haven't seen the original Blade Runner, which is perfectly possible, we're generations now on from that film's release and yeah. it's got the rep, it's still cult. Yeah, which was not commercially successful at its time. Yeah, so there's generations who will not have seen this, and the marketing to get people to see this has been disastrous, and I'm pretty convinced that's why it's had some terrible word of mouth, um, because they've pulled the same trick they tried with Watchmen, which was to say that they've produced trailers for an entirely different to film to what Blade Runner 2049 is. Uh, I mean, there's, what, three action scenes in the whole film, if I recall correctly? That's probably about right. And to be honest, film those sequences only really seemed to be there so you could stitch them into a trailer. And that's what's happened. There's a few of the kind of abstract shots and then these action-packed sequences to kind of give you a trailer that's got a thumping action rhythm that thinks, oh, well, I like that because it's sci-fi. And then, then you get to it and it's a two-and-a-half-hour ponderous thought piece for the most part. And that's great. I do love it. But it's been wildly missold. Yeah, so because you want to mention when you're talking at the moment about the action sequences, Scott, yeah, because there are only a couple, really, they really just sort of punctuate the the fairly ponderous nature, as you say. Like particularly the Las Vegas one, when you see the um, spinners arrive, and like because it's been it's largely been dialogue up to that point. There's one kind of like sharp stab of action, and it goes back to dialogue and the ponderous nature. Mm. And if you focus not on your trailer, then you are you're doing both the customers and yourself at a service. And I I don't understand the point of misleading trailers. Yeah, the one, I, I can't remember now actually, but I went to check it was in the trailers or not, but the, the scene that stood out particularly for me was the bit when he l- lands in San Diego, when he's just investigating the, uh, let's call it an orphanage. <laughs> yeah, yes, for, for want of a better word, yes. a, work, a workhouse might work actually. Yes, let's go, let's go yeah. Dickensian and Victorian, <laughs> workhouse. Yeah, and then he's, he's sort of set upon by a crowd. And then your replicant fellow, uh, Love, just unleashes an orbital bombardment from nowhere and then it's never referred to again. Not even so much as as, as Gosling sort of picking himself up, dusting himself for going, oh, well, that was a bit strange, wasn't it? Oh, but I was certainly wasn't expecting an orbital bombardment to occur, but yes. it has. Yes, How it doesn't great. question that at any point at all. So, yeah. well, well, that that was convenient. I'll just carry on about my day then, shall I? <laughs> So, I mean, these are that, that is very much the points where it's at its weakest, is where it's trying to be something that it plainly isn't. But when it's embracing its nature, um, Blade Runner is an exceptionally powerful film. All I can think of, it, it's it's the visuals of it, as you say, the whole uh, cinematography stuff is so overwhelming on a big screen that it's, uh, mm-hmm. that it really just batters you into submission in a, in a very good way. And it's the sort of film that I think deserves to be seen at a cinema. Um, unfortunately, I don't think you'll get the same experience as you do at home. I, I, I kind of say that because the last time I felt something like this in a cinema was actually uh, Mad Max. Fury Road, mm-hmm. which had a similar sort of overwhelming, you know, the visual aspects of it all were just so uh, powerful. And any time I've gone back to it in home formats, I've still enjoyed it, but it's certainly nothing like that experience that you got from the first time just watching it on a big screen. Yeah, um, even from the 
from the very opening scene with that sort of with Ryan Gosling coming out of the mist and then because mm-hmm. it's so it's such a striking thing and it, it actually reminded me a little of Parts of Arrival yeah Daniel Villeneuve's last film but just that and just the way it just slowly lingers on that and it just and you just kind of get completely kind of overwhelmed by that thing and that because you're looking at it on a 10 meter high screen yeah it's just not going to be the same on a TV it's yeah. not it's 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 just this massive thing with these beautiful, beautiful visuals where the director has the, um, and his DOP, but the director has the the strength to know that, no, that you're, I'm not going to cut to this, not going to, and it's not going to bore you, but you just take this in, observe this, this slow brooding thing, these beautiful visuals. And I, I think, yeah, there's, it does need to be seen in a cinema to really appreciate that. Yeah. And it did sort of make me think back to the, the original film as well, as it would I have, I mean, I, I like Blade Runner quite a bit, but it's not my not my, not one of my top ten films. But um, maybe I would feel differently had I seen it on a big screen because the similar similar arguments would apply to that as well. I think, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. What we can say is that this new version of Blade Runner twenty four is absolutely definitely worth your time. Uh, I mean, the one thing we've not really hit upon is how it's continued. Uh, the themes that uh, Philip K. Dick would be so so happy to see. I think in this one because it, it explores the his bit noirs as much as any any other film that has been produced based on his work um, it, it, it at the same time it's not actually bludgeoning you over the head with him you know very clearly the, the driving narrative is the you know the, the mystery of what where this replicant's uh, child is and the, trying to work that out but it's also just working in parts of you know what does it mean to be human or a replicant what makes a replicant different from a human uh, it's not sort of stopping to arbitrarily point out these things to you even when Jared Leto's kind of trying to come with those points. It, it's just kind of working them in fairly organically. Uh, the relationship that uh, Kay has with his computer, well his, his computer really, uh, yes. because the, the, the generated it's, persona that that's got is obviously another major a- axis of it, um, of which explores that just accidentally much better than Hair did and that whole film Hair was about that theme so yeah um, Hair is very much what came to mind during the sequences with Anna de Armas her the character Joy um, mm. I think but maybe because it, I think this, you and I both had the same criticism of her Scott that that wasn't really about a relationship with something that wasn't human it was basically about a long distance relationship yeah whereas the relationship with Kay and Joy in Blade Runner 2049 really is about a relationship that isn't because there's no tangibility but the person is there and and, uh, yes but yes and even as being part of a film and a relatively small part of a film it does a much better job than that whole film her did yeah yeah so again it's just covering I guess identity is probably as good a summation as I can think of from the recurring uh, Philip K. Dick themes but yeah in terms of just talking about your identity or identities of People in particular it does a, a great job of kind of working all that in thematically without really uh, bludgeoning you with it or pointing anything out, obviously. Other than that, I, I agree with him when you're saying, I think Jared Leto was a, a weak point. Uh, say the, the character, I suppose, needs to be there, I guess, maybe, but not the way that it's done here. It just seems, it just seems kind of willfully abstract the way they've decided to play mm. that character. Um, weird for the sake of being weird, really. Yeah, I mean, there's look, there, there's some weird CEOs about, but most of them seem like they would function as human beings, whereas Leto's character in this kind of doesn't. He's just, you know, he's a step away from, well, 
to be honest, he is a Bond villain. He, he's, he's playing more from the Bond villain kind of uh, trope of books than he is from being a human being. You know, it's not like, you know, I don't know, he always feels more like... I can see where you're coming from with the Bond villain bit, but maybe with a bit of, like, John Doe from Seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> but And I don't really understand the... He's not given enough time. He's only in, what, like four scenes, maybe. Um, and it doesn't have... As many as that. It could only be two, to be honest. Um, and he doesn't really have any motivation, and I wasn't really quite sure what he was... I wasn't really quite sure what his angle was for a lot of it. But I guess I think maybe I missed something at the start, because the whole... Another little niggle. They don't like the whole wall of text you get at the start of it, kind of explaining what happened in between films. That was a bit, That seemed a bit lazy, but I can kind of understand why they needed to do it. But uh, it, it seemed to say, yeah, replicants were illegal, but they're still just replicants and they're making them. And I'm not yeah. sure why. So, it just, just because. I actually thought that wall of text there was, was there more to mirror the first film because that's how the first film begins as well. That's true. Um, I assumed that was why it was there. It was more to kind of match how the first film began with, with a small bit of additional information that there are now these Nexus 8 models that are not allowed on Earth anymore. It's more chaos mm. with an open-ended lifespan. But I assume, because th- really the reason he seems to want the child is because they can't make enough replicants and that them being able to have sex and reproduce would allow them to make more. So therefore, it's just about money, which is always dull, but at least believable. Mm. But that just means that he's a typical CEO who wants his business to make money, but he just happens to be a psychopath at the same time for the way he treats that replicant that he's brought in. Yeah, and what I don't get is, I mean, I, I don't know what the process is. None of it's obviously explained, but or even what the whole replicant life cycle would be, but assuming that it's roughly the same as humans at a push, nine months to build, as opposed to what they're doing just now, I, I, I'm, you know... Maybe he's worked out the economic case, but we don't get to see that PowerPoint presentation is all I'm saying. So we don't know the validity of what he's coming out with. So it's all just a bit wishy-washy. Um, and it just seems to be an excuse of a, a psychopath th- uh, yeah. <laughs> to throw it into the mix to keep things up. Because like, we need a Roy Batty replacement. There you go. That'll do. <laughs> Job done. And I'm going to stop sort of picking niggles with it because I'm, I'm, begin- I'm aware that I'm beginning to sound awfully negative about a film that I really, really enjoyed and will have contending for my film of the year. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go back to just saying it's an incredibly engaging story. It's well acted, looks absolutely gorgeous and is an incredibly powerful work uh, and made me think quite a lot about a number of themes coming out of it and what more can you ask for in a major blockbuster uh, delivers uh, far better visually and mentally than any other tentpole release that I've seen probably this decade and is just a great film. Yes, lovely. I love it. I have my problems with it, of course, but let's... uh, Let's focus on the positive for a while. Um, yes, it's, it's absolutely worth seeing. And if you've not done it already, you really need to go and see it before it vanishes out of cinemas. And definitely does not deserve to be the relative flop that it is. Uh, seems to be becoming uh, another one we might have to hope that China saves if we ever want to see anything uh, similarly themed in future. So, yes. Uh, yes, go support your local Delivenu film. In January 2018, our intermission episode tried to work out what the point of Mother was. We didn't manage it, as evidenced by this discussion. Let's talk about mother. Let's stay. 
<laughs> yes, again, <laughs> unfortunately, we must. Yeah, you know when you're renovating an old decrepit house, well, your partner, who's a renowned but currently blocked writer, procrastinates, and then strangers start showing up and insinuating themselves into your daily routine with little or no motive and an oblique biblical allegory. No, me neither. But apparently Darren Aronofsky does, or at least he thinks he does, and that's mother. <laughs> apparently, or maybe not. When your mission statement is seemingly to willfully obscure and abstract any attempt at audience interpretation, it becomes something of a moot point. I don't have a lot to say about Mother, not just because I didn't like it or I want to demonstrate my disdain, but because I generally don't know what to say. Of the three of us on this podcast, I'm probably probably safe to say I'm the least fluent in the interpretation of cinema, but that's not to say I don't enjoy a challenge. And when that challenge is a fundamental shroud of obfuscation masquerading as allegory, however, <laughs> I, I lose the will and the incentive to pursue the matter further, and I'm not surprised audiences have been so split over this movie. Jennifer Lawrence is the presumably titular homeowner, Javier Bardem, her seemingly distant husband, referred to in the credits only as him. We are to assume their relationship is loveless, or at least increasingly looking so, as him subjects them both to the misery of his writer's block. Blah blah, some precious glass thing him keeps in a jar. Things take a dog leg when a strange couple, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, turn up at the premises, at once ingratiating themselves with the writer and paying scant regard to his wife. Adopting the persona of the demure housewife, mother contents herself, pottering about, while the mysterious duo express adulation of the creator, mm, the creator, and occasionally slip off for some rumpy-pumpy in various rooms. The house is a heart, by the way. Mm. To cut a long story short, the same scenario plays out multiple times as the mysterious couple are joined first by their two sons, one of whom murders the other, then, in the wake of this act, further unidentified strangers, until such a time as the house is overflowing with unwanted visitors and events transpire that most closely resemble the storming of the barricades at the end of Les Mis, albeit with assault rifles. It's at this point that a couple of scenes play out which really upset some audiences, and I have to say I found them somewhat unsettling myself, not least of all because the film doesn't really do much to earn the tonal shift. Mm. Um, Like I said before, I do like to be challenged, but on the proviso that I have been afforded the option of selecting a challenging movie. At no point prior, throughout its running time, or indeed its marketing, does Mother suggest that its audience can expect it to become a Gaspar Noe movie. And if I was ready to give up on it at the hour mark, then I certainly felt like slamming the door in its face as the credits rolled. If Aronofsky is indeed to continue indulging himself in religious subtext, then I fully expect his next movie to be 168 hours in length and feature Willem Dafoe walking up and down the aisles of a DIY store for six straight days before finally settling on a light switch he likes and then putting his feet up for 24 hours. At least with Noah, Ian star Russell Crowe had the good grace to troll the Pope into finally admitting the absurdity of the source material as he declared, quote, it is as it was, unquote. A gesture that left me chortling in glee for a good few days after. Heck, he even gave us rock monsters. I like the rock monsters. Mother has none of that incidental stupidity to supplement its cause. Rather, it just feels like a bad movie. But what do I know? Well, but you seem to know quite a lot because you seem to be largely reading my thoughts for most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, and first of all, I'm going to mention the positives of this film on a production <laughs> level. <laughs> I, I almost did stay silent there. No, on a production level, it's well made, mm-hmm. and I have never hated Michelle Pfeiffer so much in my life. I've never hated her at all. In fact, so the fact that I. I- Dislike that character so much. I was going to say, I was so ready for Pfeiffer. <laughs> um, but I mean, she's meant to be a dislikable character, and I, mm. oh boy, did I dislike her. So she did a really good job there again. Um, mm. Mm. Okay, I'm done with the positives. 
uh, <laughs> it is it's so navel gazing and self indulgent and film shouldn't they? It's unbelievable. It's very stagey, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's somehow much more film studio in the A than Pi. Yeah, which was exactly. I was going to say, you took the in my mouth. Um, I was thinking, yeah, you should have like progressed from Pi forward, but it seems to have regressed to a, a, a pre Pi stage. And there's, I mean, it's difficult to care about this film because I genuinely disliked every single character in the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I guess most of them you're meant to, because I say Michelle Pfeiffer is spectacularly unlikable. But yes, there's no sympathy for Jennifer Lawrence either because um, when Michelle Pfeiffer is talking to her, she's sort of demure and apologising to her instead of just telling her to get the hell out of her house. I'm like, mm. So stand up for yourself. I've got no um, sympathy for you and I don't care. <laughs> then by the end and what it turns into, it's like, you have not earned this. Mm-hmm. Um, not that any of this makes sense, but it, it's so... I mean, there's all this biblical allegory that's in it, um, allegories that are in it, and there are the imagery that suggests that you could read all sorts of things into it, and you read different interviews at different times and they suggest the actors and the director say at different times it's mean different things, so I'm not entirely sure they know. Mm-hmm. But it's... Um, it's got all this imagery and absolutely nothing to bear the weight of that at all. The one, the one thing that could have worked, and Aronofsky has demonstrated that he can pull it off before, is that horrible sense of being trapped in some sort of um, fever dream, hmm. um, uh-huh. where Jennifer Lawrence's character, and for the most part, I assume that's what the tonally it was gunning for, because her sort of bewilderment as she sort of stumbles about the house and just every time she turns around and goes into another room to find other people there and all they want to do is sort of smile at her and reassure her that it's okay without saying what it is yeah. um, and that horrible feeling of uh, we've all had we've all had that dream or something similar and Aronofsky's demonstrated in like, like I say his, his, his very first film as you touched on Scott Pye his, his up until this point his most film student to feel in film <laughs> Pye worked largely um, on that level and also, I would argue, probably uh, Requiem for a Dream uh, captures a, a good deal yeah. of that essence as well, mm-hmm. albeit in a much more grounded and and realist way. So it's frustrating to think that I'm assuming that's what he was going for here, and it just falls flat in its face. And I think a lot of it is to do with the staginess of the, the performances. Like Javier Bardem, I just couldn't get behind. I just, I just, I, I really did want to just slap most of the characters in this yeah, film. Yeah, exactly, exactly what I, was, I almost said to it. Yeah. Especially Michelle Pfeiffer, just because there's something so unlikable about characters, but everybody else, mm. I wanted to punch everybody's. Mm. And it's just, I don't know what say, like there's, there's a kind of, you can see that it might work when you're talking about the fever dreams and stuff too, and there's like, she's, there's some sort of mysterious powder that she dissolves into all water and drinks through, and it's, mm. It's a really ancient bottle, and I don't know what it's mm-hmm. meant to be. I can't think it's meant to be some something like laudanum or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, some of the stuff makes sense if you just like look at this like kind of a withdrawal thing or something, maybe mm-hmm. on a very mundane level. But that would actually work. But it's all the other stuff. It, there's all this weight put on it. There's the um, biblical allegory and Javier Bardem as Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all this apparent. And I say, I'm not reading this into the film at all because. This has come from, there would say, from reading interviews and things and quotes from the cast. There's apparently something about the artist-muse relationship, and then there's about the, well, you can see that maybe they're trying to ask the, the idea of the destruction of Mother Earth and things, and, huh. but it's all, all this really sort of heavy weight in it, 
or a, no, or a structure of, that can't... None of, those, none of those theories get seen through to any yeah. kind of conclusion either. It's too muddled. Yeah, it's too muddled. And the, the actual, the core of the film and the structure and the story, which really isn't there at all. There is no story. There is no story. It, it can't hold up all these great themes that are being thrust upon it. It does not have the strength to hold them up. It's, it's symbolic. Symbolic of what? Just general symbolism. Yeah. Yes. Um, there is a, there's a quote from a writer for Entertainment Weekly I just, I'm going to mention this because I, I thought it summed up reasonably well. So, Darren Aronofsky's mother is Rosemary's baby, amped up into a fugue state of self-indulgent solipsism. He's an artist, and he really wants you to know that he's been thinking a lot about what that means. <laughs> Unfortunately, his gaze is so deep into his own navel that it's just exasperating. <laughs> it's like, yes, he's, he's a tortured artist, and you, you must know what it's like to be a tortured artist. And like, mm. yeah, no, it's... Uh, I, mean, I don't dislike this film as much as say I dislike it because there was at least something here that I could try to grab onto and it's that it's well made technically mm. but it, it initially just, presents a challenge that you want to engage with but yeah, then it pulls but by the, the end, bug out from under you so sharply yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's so self-important and it does not have it's the substance to be, important to be about. about yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah, I'm glad to hear you come on to this stuff because I'd, I'd had a very hard week before I watched Mother and I was not in my sharpest of states when I watched it and I had no clue what was going on and I didn't know if that was a fault with the film or with me, but I'm, uh, I'm glad to see it's uh, perhaps more to do with the, the film structure than it is. Uh, I just yeah. found this to be a, a relentless tumult of stuff that I couldn't get any purchase on at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I probably wasn't as shocked by the end because at that point I was just staring blankly at it. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what it was trying to do, I didn't know what it was trying to tell me and uh, yeah, so, so it could have done whatever it likes and it probably just met with the same, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> reaction to it so um, it's the sort of film that if I was going to really give a fair opinion to I suppose I'd have to watch it again but I don't really feel any <laughs> pressing urgency to do that. Now I will say if you as we kind of hinted at before if if you want a different movie if you don't want it, if you want something that is you know well out of the ordinary well, it's sort of non-marvel yes it's, it's definitely that so if that's your jam this may be, be your marmalade but it, I, it's I the can... least conformist film you will have stumbled across in a cineplex any times uh, recently yes so it, it, it does have that going for it that is actually a positive thing I, I would argue however um, I, I, yeah I couldn't make head nor tail out of it and as such I don't really have a valid opinion other than uh, uh, I, really, I really like the poster <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, yeah, and again, another thing that disappointed me because I really knew very little about uh, Mother apart from it, some you know, divided audiences. But yeah. some some people are saying that it is really great, and of course, I'm a big fan of Darren Aronofsky's work, and I like the most of the actors that are in this. You know, mm. the, uh, fans of most of them, or at the very least, um, agnostic to them. So it uh, seemed like it would have a lot of positives, but yeah, it was just all nonsense. What you say there, though, Scott, is you know part of the point, and this is this is this is why I took um, such exception with a great deal of it. It seemed you didn't know much about about it going into it. Nobody did because the filmmakers made um, a, a decision to not release any information about what it was beforehand. Mm. Um, and that's partly why I felt so aggrieved by the final sequences and the film it turned out to be, because I kind of, I kind of, I kind of want to be given the option of going into that film before. I don't want to go into a film blind, not knowing what it is, and yeah. find out that it, it, it's going to present some of those images that it absolutely has not earned the right to do, and just thrust them in my face and go, "Do you feel challenged? Do you feel challenged?" Mm. 
Well, yeah. um, yes, for on one of the rare occasions where I did actually contextually, and you know, if I if I were to pay, you know, as it, as it turned out, as it turned out, rent, rental is a lot cheaper than going to the cinema. But if I'd gone to the cinema and on blind faith on on the back of Aronofsky's reputation, yeah. paid ten twelve quid to see this, I'd be furious. This would be yes. one of the occasions where I would come back out and immediately ask for my money back. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, but seems like a, a fair response to it, and it's. Yeah, you know, maybe that's it, the response. It's probably wanted. what I was looking for. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, but yeah, when I was watching it, it just feels like a film that's very pleased with itself, and I was not quite mm. so pleased with it. Yeah, so. it does. It very much feels like it, doesn't and it? It's, it's not. Things- it's not often I actively dislike Javier Bardem in something either. Yeah, I, I just, I just liked everybody again. I think that's part of the point. Except that you're supposed to presumably have sympathy for Jennifer Lawrence, but I didn't. Mm. No, because why should we not with all this rubbish and like exactly? I mean, maybe that plays into the idea that she's supposed to be Earth, because she has said that that's what it's meant to be, that she's yeah. Mother Earth, but... I think, eh, really? Again, I that, that, that doesn't play out to any sort of logical conclusion, so... Or doesn't play out logically, rather. No, and it certainly then, plays to a conclusion, but... And then even you have this, that sort of Mother Earth allegory and stuff, but then what is the end meant to represent? <laughs> I said, yeah. Oof, it's just weird and it seems to speed through the end and get extra mental with every minute that passes yeah, it's definitely not a film where logic applies and mm. it does seem that it's I don't know it's, it, is, it is so loose in what it presents that okay yes you could read it many different ways but that just mm-hmm. means ultimately it doesn't really read as any of them yeah. <laughs> yes uh, those, those films are out there though that adopt that approach and work but this is not one of them <laughs> but there you go so can I, just before you go on, I've just noticed a quote here about Mother um, from Aronofsky, or sorry, a fact, which kind of explains a lot. Apparently Aronofsky wrote the screenplay in five days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd heard yeah. that. I thought you were going to say just one word. I thought you were going to yeah. say cocaine. <laughs> hmm. Five days. It kind of shows. I, I, are he and Jennifer Lawrence not an item now as well? I, I, believe I seem to remember reading something. Yeah. Oh, not anymore. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. I can imagine this being an elaborate ruse on his part just to get to spend a lot of time with her, and he went into production not really knowing what it was about. <laughs> he just wanted to spend some time with Jennifer Lawrence to ingratiate himself. I don't know. But, uh, yes. Maybe maybe she watched Mother too, and that's why they're not together anymore. Our November 2017 episode looked, nominally at least, at journalism and film, although it's debatable that Entranced Earth was correctly filed, as this review will cover. Yes, the film we are talking about is uh, variously known, but uh, Entranced Earth is the one what I've got. Uh, If I recall correctly, it made the list off the back of something like the IMDb summary, which runs roughly thus. uh, In the hypothetical Latin Latin American country of El Dorado, poet and journalist Paolo Martins fights against the populist governor, Felipe Vieira, sorry, Felipe Vieira, and the Conservative President Porfiro Diaz, which, to be fair, if you're going to try to boil down Terra in Trance, Brazilian writer-director Glauber Roca's 1967 film down to a paragraph, is about as close as you're going to get. Uh, but it does rather sell short the outright weirdness of the film, <laughs> though, and I'm rather sure that's why this film's Wikipedia page, so often the home of the needlessly detailed recap, doesn't even bother in this instance. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, this is a film that exists and this is its name. Bye now. Yes. Um, it would probably be foolish of me to even attempt to recap the plot, but no one's ever accused me of good sense. Um, to be honest, though, it's tough to add a great deal more about it. 
Uh, Yardel Filos, Paolo Martins is a poet first and journalist a very distant second. Uh, if I'm reading it rightly, it's framed non-linearly with him reminiscing, sort of, with his girlfriend Sarah, Glousey Rocca, while driving away very quickly from the hot mess El Dorado has found itself in, assault rifle in hand, lamenting his part in the hot messification, along with pretty much everything else in his life. Uh, we flash back to Paolo's more idealistic days as he convinced Jose Lugois Felipe Vieira to run for governor's office on what appears to be a left-wing socialist ticket railing against the elite, but this soon descends into populism, with Vieira making a string of promises he couldn't hope to meet to the adulation of the masses who desperately want to believe him. We also see his relationship with hardcore capitalist rich boy President Porfirio Diaz, who stands for all the things you expect, and worries that the external business investment will drop off after Vieira's election, and plots to overthrow him by arms if necessary, although budget constraints rather limits the opportunity for on-screen civil war. Paolo is, in truth, little more than an observer in these events, and aside from decrying them, he has little role in attempting to stop them. And what events they are, as before long both sides are pushed out to ludicrous extents, with Vieira almost assumed by a wave of the worst sort of mob rule, and Diaz playing out some sort of Wolf of Wall Street style playboy excesses, before ending up giving what's possibly some sort of party political broadcast as a frothing, ranting fascist. I'm perhaps underplaying the oddity of the film. Uh, You're definitely underplaying the oddity of the film, Scott. You haven't once mentioned the ermine cloak and the massive crown or um, (laughs) the messianic Christ-like scene. Yeah. What with Paolo being a poet and all, outbreaks of poetry presented as dialogue are are frequent and, well, melodramatic isn't the right (laughs) term, but it's as close as one I can come to. Um, In that regard, it's rather like a musical without the backing track. It's a wildly baffling piece to watch when entering blind, and while I can't say I enjoyed it in any traditional sense, it is fascinating. Oh, yeah. uh, it's, that's true. It's, it's not conventionally bad. <laughs> having done a little digging, I can at least make some sense of the context. Uh, Rocket was a leading force behind Brazil's Cinema Novo, a movement very much in response to the French New Wave, and that indeed works. the closest examples I can think of to liken this to would be some sort of cross between this year's Neruda and last year at Marienbad. Yeah, uh, it's clearly very, very influenced by the French New Wave. I thought that all the way through it, it really felt like yeah. it owed a debt to that. Uh, Roca seemed to have a rather expansive and hopeful view of the influence that cinema could wield way over and above simply highlighting injustices. It seems, along with his involvement in political causes, they thought to shepherd a cultural revolution. Uh, this rather hit the skids when Democratic President Joe Goulart was turfed out of office in a military coup, with noted asshole Castello Branco assuming the dictatorship, bankrolled by the IMF and American multinationals. Not unlike the stated aims of Diaz for El Dorado, not at all coincidentally enough. <laughs> Clearly, writer-director Roca was affected by this, and Paolo Martin's rage at, well everyone, but particularly the politicians he feels betrayed by or disappointed in, must certainly be a bit of author insertion. So, with this in mind, it's possible to parse the film a little better, although ultimately I'm not sure it's more than a raging against the dying of the light, and Paolo's bellicose denunciations of everyone that isn't him can go a touch tiring by the end of the piece. It's a howl of anguish more than it is a film, although it's all the more interesting for it. Now, we're not the kind of podcast that throws around the term Brechtian, but if we were, we'd be throwing it around right now. The editing, the deliberate desyncing of the sound, the pacing, the one hopes deliberate overacting, some of the framing, certainly the refusal to establish any shot makes the film a dizzying mess, and as protagonists go, Paolo seems custom-built to repel empathy. 
it has taken the art house style and turned it to all the art house, which <laughs> would often have me running screaming, but Terem Trans is just too peculiar a film to hate. At the risk of repeating myself, I can't hand on heart say that I enjoyed Terem Trans, but it and the political and cultural milieu around it are absolutely fascinating and well worth reading about. Viewed in a vacuum, it's hard to take it seriously and hard to breathe, so don't view it in a vacuum. Or a Hoover, for that matter, although that's more of a hygiene concern. But looked at as part of the wider goings-on in Brazil at the time, it's a very interesting, inventive and outre mood piece, and a curiosity that's worth indulging. But yeah, it's mental. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's mental. If you, by the time this comes out, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a week, if you look back in our Twitter feed, you'll see a, a gif I've posted of one of the characters in the uh, in this film that is largely how I felt after watching this film. Yeah. <laughs> Decidedly manic, slightly unhinged, not entirely sure what was going on. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, well, politically, um, it's interesting for the time and you see that the Brazilian government tried to ban it because it was portraying Brazil in a negative light. All authoritarian regimes, they don't like to have anybody criticising them at all. Mm. Who does that sound like nowadays? <laughs> hmm. Anyway, uh, it's... I did not like this film. I really, really did not like this film. But I don't regret watching it, I think, because it's been... You know, there's nothing worse than mediocre. And this is not your conventionally bad film. This is your balls-out super mental film, really, but... <laughs> Yeah, so very clearly it was a, a great debt to the French New Wave. So if I think if you like the French New Wave at all, it's definitely worth checking out and seeing how that was influencing other cinema in other parts of the world. Other than that, I absolutely could not recommend it because I think the number of people who will enjoy this film is fairly low. Yeah, it is definitely not a general audience recommendation. Oh, no, no. This, this would clearly not be suited in your multiplex. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. But it is... Yeah, it's interesting, and I've seen outside of some of the French New Wave films, as we've both mentioned, it's unlike anything I've seen. It's heavy into the imagery, uh, as opposed to narrative or anything. Scenes, as I mentioned, the scenes of the the right wing character. Although I really, I suppose in the end, they're both pretty right wing. Um, the two politicians, but the right wing character, the the big industrial man with these lots of money wearing his big crown but then at some point to try and show he was a, a humble person a person of the people driving through I think maybe in some some sort of very humble car like a Citroen 2CV or something like that with a crucifix in his hand and wearing black it's yeah, it's really really heavy in the imagery maybe a bit too heavy at times um, yeah. <laughs> it's, I guess it's trying to go for as much visual poetry as there is poetry in um, Paolo Martin's dialogue yeah. It is distinctive. I will give it that. Um, <laughs> it's about all I'm willing to give it, to be honest. I, I say, I didn't enjoy the film, but I don't regret having seen it. So now I know what this film is like, and I, I can move on with my life. It's, it's not something that will ever trouble my thoughts or, or my television screen again, I imagine. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> again, it's difficult to recommend it in terms of being something that people will actually enjoy, I think. <laughs> However, if you are the kind of person that does listen to film podcasts, you clearly got some interest in the genre <laughs> just talking about. Uh, you're not just here for news about the latest Marvel films. So uh, if, if you've got that level of investment in it and you've seen something like... Uh, 
like maybe Jodorowsky or something like that, and you've you've got a a taste for that kind of thing, then that's probably more the the the, the end of the market that this is skewed towards. Mm, yeah, um, it is a very strange uh, beat poetry uh, section of a film more than it is anything that's uh, <laughs> comprehensible in any any yeah, real I mean, sense. And sort of even in like in terms of editing, it's almost like dream logic. Yeah, in yeah. parts, it's that sort of kind of fractured jumping from one scene to another and yeah it's I think sort of real cinephiles just looking for something quite different might yeah. um, be encouraged to check this out mm-hmm. uh, yes but a big Marvel blockbuster it is not if um, you want an easy time this is this is not the one for you it's not it's not one to stick on when you're hungover in the morning or anything like that but uh, yeah if you want something that's a, a bit more challenging I think you will find this I can't imagine anyone watching this and not finding it interesting I can very much imagine them watching it and not enjoying it in the slightest, but they would have to admit that it is never boring. Yes, <laughs> absolutely not. It it does not suffer the great crime of mediocrity. Yes. <laughs> it is perhaps a cautionary tale that just because you see the word you're looking for, in this case a journalist, um, <laughs> in a synopsis of a film, does not mean that the film in fact has anything to do with that word at all, because, well, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And even though there are a number of scenes where you see Paolo in the newspaper office, presumably, and yeah. sitting at a typewriter, I don't think he ever actually uses that typewriter. It just seems to be a prop in front of him, and it's got nothing to do with journalism or newspapers at all. It's like, we only know he's a journalist because people say it a couple of times. Yes, yes. Judged purely in terms of it belonging as part of this podcast, it fails massively. <laughs> of course, we couldn't have known that until we watched it. And certainly it was an interesting film to watch, but yes, there's the danger of um, relying on other people's rather inadequate synopses and plot keywords. Um, <laughs> although, really... I think anybody who's ever used plot keywords on IMDb by now should know that to pay those, no heed. The plot synopses, yes, right? Because often they're at least give you a fairly accurate idea of what's going on in the film. The plot keywords on IMDb are scattershot at best. Yes. (laughs) And we'll close out today with a look at Morven Collar from our May 2018 episode covering Lynn Ramsey's output. Shall I talk about Morven Collar, Scott? I think you should. You don't need my approval. You don't need my permission. It's still nice to have, Scott. (laughs) It's still nice to have. I disagree. I don't think you should talk about it, but you... But then again, you've, you've gone to the trouble of watching and writing about it, so... You well, the people in the, the, people in the film head. certainly don't want to talk about it. But no. <laughs> when Samantha Morton's Morvern Caller wakes up on the lounge floor next to the body of her author boyfriend, she finds his computer beckoning her to read his suicide note. In it, he expresses his love for Morvern, the determination that slitting his wrists while he slept quote, seemed like the right thing to do, unquote, and that she is to submit his completed manuscript to a number of publishers and use the money he has left in his bank account to pay for his funeral. So, Morvern instead decides to aimlessly hang around an empty train station, pop a pill and go out drunkenly partying with her friend, reveal herself to a passing fishing boat and sleep with a complete stranger. Then, after a couple of days of working around her boyfriend's body, she chops it up in the bath while listening to a mixtape he left her, buries the remains in a remote shallow grave, edits the manuscript to name herself the author and uses the burial money to pay for a party holiday in Ibiza. Now, we all deal with grief in different ways. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that I found it very difficult to sympathise with Morvern, Morvern sorry, as the protagonist in a story that deals with 
Well, I don't really know what it deals with, to be honest. <laughs> so I guess that means I just don't buy Morvern as a protagonist. <laughs> but I'll come back to that in a minute. There is actually a good deal to appreciate about Marvin Caller. Uh, everything about the movie is steeped in economy, beginning with Ramsey's direction, which, separated from the script, I like very much. There's a confidence in the way she allows the story to run its course, which speaks to an experience beyond a typical sophomore filmmaker, and a trust in Morton and the rest of the cast, whom I understand, as we've mentioned, to have been largely, if not entirely, untrained, is fairly obvious. There is a maturity which makes me marvel at how infrequently Ramsey has worked, yet also glad that she hasn't felt the need to keep pace with industry expectation. Here is a director I want to see only when they're good and ready to say something, even if I'm baffled by their message. (laughs) Um, The movie is likewise shot with a refreshing lack of visual verbosity by Alwyn Kuchler, Ratcatcher alumni and a name with which I was not familiar, therefore forcing me to kick myself when I discovered he worked with Danny Boyle on Sunshine. Um, Out with the confines of city and town centres, Scotland is a frequently blunt and miserable array of matter, which admittedly stunning mountainscapes and coastal lines aside often presents itself in the guise of mud, heather and grass covered tilty bits, interspersed with broad <laughs> strokes of ill-maintained tarmac we call roads. All you need to know about Kukler's work here is that he does some of those justice. Um, In terms of performances, Morton is a wonderful choice for the role because she is as close to a flawless actress as I believe England may have produced and she is blessed with that ability to say as much, if not more, with her expressions when silent as when emoting at full tilt. Not that there will be much in the way of tilting here, you understand, as that economy I have mentioned extends with prevalence to the writing of Morvern, who is (laughs) as enigmatic, if not engaging, a protagonist as I may have ever encountered in film. And this is the crux of my issue with the movie. As engaging as Morton is, and even though her abilities seem to come from the cosmic ether, (laughs) unlike that vacuum of potential energy from which I believe she is born, even she cannot be expected to manifest something from less than nothing. If Morvern is experiencing some sort of inner anguish at the death of her lover, some existential turmoil or critical metamorphosis, then I, as the viewer, am not to know of it. (laughs) We know nothing of Morvern's life. Her relationship is perhaps implied to have been an emotionally and or intellectually unequal one, but I base that solely on my assumed verbosity of the deceased and Morvern's borderline mute presence at her menial job in a supermarket. (laughs) I suppose I must also assume that, statistically speaking, her boyfriend is unlikely to have shared her proclivity for dismemberment, so that could probably be considered (laughs) an inequality too. I'm all for for enigmas, especially human ones And a lot of the performances I've appreciated throughout the years Have been those where an actor's eyes have said more than their pie hole But I can only reasonably be expected to engage with that enigma If their reasoning, history and impetus Are not all completely internalised to the point of nothingness (laughs) I find myself infuriated by the talent so clearly evident In virtually every other aspect of Marvin Caller It's like being handed a note by some mysterious figure who says Read this, your life and the lives of your family depend on it Only to find out it's been written in invisible ink (laughs) I suppose what I'm trying to say is that this is the only film in which I've seen Samantha Morton Where she hasn't engaged me I trust you implicitly, Samantha I really do And I'm willing to accept that it may well be me, not you But this just isn't for me There are plenty of people who claim Morvern is a compelling character I know that because I've spent a good deal of my free time today Desperately reading through IMDb user reviews In the hope of unearthing some truth about her If not perhaps my own intellectual and emotional shortcomings Which I can only presume to be the reason for my failure to grasp her And to those people all I can say is this What is your evidence? (laughs) 
I'm, I'm slightly frustrated, I'm guessing you can probably tell. <laughs> I desperately want to like Morven Caller as, on a level of craftsmanship, it has considerable chops. And I even find myself comparing it favourably to great British low-budget works of atmosphere of recent years, such as Dead Man's Shoes, for example. I just don't know what it is I'm buying here, and it's <laughs> driving me nuts. Someone please tell me I am not going nuts. Well, I can tell you that if you are going nuts, I'm at least on the same path with you. Are we on the crazy train together? <laughs> perhaps so, because oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because what you have said is almost exactly how I feel about it. Like I can I can appreciate all of the craft and things, yes. but it's like to what end is this craft? Thank goodness uh, for that. And I'm, I don't even know if I'm supposed to sympathise with her or dislike her. I don't. I, yeah, she's. I kind of dislike it. I'm not sure if that's the point or not. But yeah, there's not really enough of a character there to no. really dislike or like. No, even and though they have chopped someone up in a bath, that is normally a pretty good. That is normally <laughs> a pretty good sign that you're not supposed to like that person. Yeah, but because there's no malice there. Clearly, yeah. she's grieving. She's shot. Yes. She's grieving, and people deal with grief differently. And when, and I must admit, I must. I was thinking that body must be honking. <laughs> the smell must be unbelievable. But, but when she's she's not telling anybody that her boyfriend is dead, that she's leaving the body there and things, um, I was okay with that. I was on board with that. I kind of yeah. understood, yes, this woman, she's shocked, she's grieving. Yeah. She doesn't really know what she's doing, where she is, okay. But then she takes the step of dismembering a body. Like, no, this, this is just now a completely different film. And the, but yes, at the same time, Craig... I'm not disliking you for that. No, I'm more because just it's, rendered, it's rendered so ambiguous that you can't even factor that into the decision-making process of whether or not you are supposed to like this character. Yeah. Last thing, everything else um, makes sense. Like her putting her name on the the manuscript, okay. Her sort of not quite pretending he's not dead, but deciding not to confront it yeah. and I going f- on holiday. I feel, like there's a, I feel like there's a better film, Drew, where all that happened was in a, in a fit of madness and, or, you know, grief-induced madness or grief-induced whatever, or if we were given some sort of clue as to what the nature of the relationship was and she felt she had to have some revenge on him, that she put her name on that manuscript and it sold and she used that to fund some sort of, you know, excursion to Ibiza with a human being rather than an alien in the in the lead role. I think I think there would be a far more compelling film to be had there that might have and I'm not saying a film yeah. has to have an obvious message, but at least a message that one could buy into. Yeah, it's a it's a strange one. It's like, and that it's like everything else kind of fits to it. like yeah. Does want to confront the death, okay. She spends the funeral money on a holiday instead. She's kinda of just wants to go a bit crazy. All of that I understand. It makes sense. Um mm. <laughs> and even if she'd just she'd gone to, to she'd gone to Spain and had left the body in the flat or something. Yeah. All of that kind of makes sense. But this this one bit and again, you feel like you should really dislike this character because she's playing music while she's doing it, and she's got mm. sunglasses on and it's just But it's because it's so strange and it's so Yeah, ambiguous is a good word, cook I silly. I've no idea what's going inside her head it, it there. It feels like there might be an entire first act missing from this film where we <laughs> establish the nature of the relationship and everything else thereafter hinges on that and might give us some sort of clue as to as to what she's thinking. But there's just none of that. Yeah, because the there's most you get is when she's talking to Lana, Kathleen McDermott's character, mm. 
And um, when she tells her they're sitting in the bath together and she tells, she says, he's left me. Mm. And she said, and uh, Lana says, oh, it's probably just another one of his moods. So yeah. clearly she was aware that he was depressive and perhaps that their relationship had been a sort of on off kind of thing, something like that, maybe. Mm. That's the only hint you get about what was really going on there. But yeah, and her colleagues at the supermarket saying, Oh, don't worry, he'll be back with his tail between his legs. Yeah. You might assume that this is not the first time <laughs> this is the first time that she's been bereft of him, just not necessarily in the circumstance that presents itself now. Yes, whereas, you know, the all of the other potential grief things make sense apart from the dismemberment and it's so strange. Like, yeah, does like you're saying, Craig, is it like a revenge thing? Had she felt in some way, either physically or mentally abused by him or, or something? It's, it's missing something. But at the same time, yes, you don't immediately hate this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be more to do with Samantha Morton's innate likability. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yes, the same thing. Uh, I don't hold her in quite as high regard as you seem to do, Craig, but although I have liked her a great deal in many things. Uh, so I, I do see where you're coming from too, that she, it's hard to really get a handle on her or her character in this film. It feels like she and Lim Ramsey have had some fantastic discussions and have a very, diff- very definite trajectory for this character they're mm. just not letting us know what it is <laughs> yes. but i've got a sneaking suspicion from his silence that scott is sitting on an opinion bomb on this one. <laughs> oh, um i've been keeping silent because you're basically saying what i'd be saying it's oh, uh, <laughs> it, it is it's strange that it has got to be the least prejudicial uh showing of a dismemberment that i've ever seen in film which normally <laughs> has at least some implied criticism that you just don't get here which is a, was refreshing good, in a way it was a good 30 seconds before i even cottoned on to that's what she was doing yes yeah at first when you see she's like she's but she's got her foot on the edge of the bath yeah and she like leans down toenails or something and you see this blood spurt and i actually thought at first she was harming herself mm. like she was digging a razor into her legs or something like mm. that mm. and it was her blood and it's like oh no right okay yeah um but yeah it's so strange it's so yeah non-prejudicial it's so strange <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i'm on the same page with you for most of the rest of it as well it's you know it's one thing presenting presenting a character as an enigma, but that does imply there's some sort of solution to it, and I don't think there is in this case. Uh, it's, I, I, you know, for all that, I didn't hate it, and I echo what you're saying mm-hmm. with the rest of it. Every other aspect of it is really well done, um, yeah. and much better than you'd expect, as you, you say, for a, a, just a second-time I, I kind of, I almost kind of admire its willful obtuseness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, overall, I still would actually say I hated the film. I, I, I watched it and enjoyed it well enough, but just at the end of it, I'm just left with a big question mark over what the what what was that about? Everything. Really? Yes. Yeah, it's the it took. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't really even end satisfyingly. Too she she's in Spain. She finally meets um, the publishers. Okay, and she's. She gets the money and okay, right? Um, so maybe she's thinking, oh, I'm gonna, gonna change my life or do something. I was still thinking, you know, is this is this dismembered body going to come back to haunt her, so to speak? You know, is this still <laughs> going to be a thing? Um, and she comes back and basically she gets a check and kind of just looks at her life and shrugs and they fill them in because she's yeah. left. It's like, well, it's, it's like, I don't, at the end of the day. A film, a film that leaves unanswered questions, often a very satisfying thing. I don't necessarily need something to even to empathise with. Just give me something to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, 
don't mind the unanswered questions if I had any idea what the questions ought to be in the first place. I'm not entirely convinced that I do. Don't just write a question mark on a frame of 35mm film and go, £8, please. Ah, dear. There's one thing being a mood piece, but when the mood is just confusion, it doesn't really satisfy quite so much. So, thanks for letting us get away with revisiting our past. We'll be back into the swing of things soon enough, but in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, please do send them in to us uh, on Twitter at FudsonFilm, Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsonFilm, or through email at podcast at FudsonFilm.com. So, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye.